If there was one Hanukkah gift that every Western country wanted in the 1960s, it was a MiG-21. Oh yeah, me too. By your silence, I assume you think that's not such a cool gift. But let me tell you, the MiG-21 was the Soviet Union's most advanced fighter jet, able to go twice the speed of sound, and well-matched against any jets that the West had to offer. The Russians mass-produced the plane and sold it to communist regimes and other friendly nations around the world, including several Arab countries. It was a very dangerous weapon. So Israel wanted one. They wanted to pull it apart, figure out how to defend against it. But of course, you couldn't just get one on eBay. They'd have to convince someone. They'd have to convince an Arab pilot to steal one for them. Israel's main intelligence agency, the Mossad, went to work. And it wasn't easy. MiG-21 pilots were the cream of the crop, the most elite aviators a country had to offer, and not generally disposed to helping the Israelis. In 1961, Mossad agents in Egypt tried to bribe a pilot with a million dollars to defect with his plane. The pilot reported them, the team was caught, and two of them were hanged. The Mossad was getting nowhere fast. And then, an unexpected breakthrough. An Iraqi Jew contacted Israeli intelligence to say that he knew a guy, a Christian Arab MiG-21 pilot named Munir Redfa, who wasn't a big fan of the Iraqi government. An American female Mossad agent made contact with Munir in Iraq, and they struck up a friendship. Even though he was a top pilot, he complained, he was still distrusted because he was a Christian and treated badly, and he hated Iraq's war against the Kurds, whom he was required to bomb. In fact, he admitted to her, if there was anyone he admired, it was the Israelis, because they stood up against Muslim aggression. The American woman lured him on a holiday in Europe, where he was met by Mossad agents. They agreed to smuggle his entire family out of Iraq, give him a million dollars, and give him Israeli citizenship if he could fly his MiG-21 to Israel. It would be incredibly dangerous, which he knew all too well. The Iraqi Air Force would try to shoot him down. It was a long way across Jordan to Israel, and his plane might not have enough fuel to make it. Every Arab Air Force would be out there looking for him over the desert. There would be no turning back. He would either make it, or die trying. On August 16, 1966, Munir Redfa took off from his Iraqi Air Force base, turned towards Israel, and made a mad dash for the border. His radio was screaming with demands that he turn around and threats to shoot him down. For nearly 600 miles, Munir shot across the Jordanian desert in a zigzag flight plan worked out by him and the Mossad. Any second, his plane could be torn apart by a missile. At the same time, back in Baghdad, Mossad agents raced around a small convoy of vans to pick up Munir's entire extended family, most of whom didn't have a clue what was going on or that they were about to leave. It was so top secret that they couldn't be told, and thought they were out in the country for a picnic. Driven to the Iranian border, they were smuggled across by sympathetic Kurdish fighters, taken to an airfield, and flown to Israel. Meanwhile, Munir reached the Israeli border with barely a drop left in his tanks. He was met by several Israeli fighter jets and escorted to an air force base in the Negev, where he landed safely. He spent the rest of his life in Israel. His MiG-21 was nicknamed 007 and is still around today as a museum exhibit, on my list of things to see in Israel when I go visit next time. Munir's defection was a major intelligence coup for Israel and earned it the gratitude of the Western powers, especially the United States. The Soviet Union looked bad for having now lost the secrets to his Betz plane. 
Iraq was embarrassed that one of its top pilots could do such a thing. It actually took a long time for the Arabs to realize that the Mossad had been involved, and that it wasn't just this pilot acting on his initiative. But most importantly, the Israelis now had in their hands one of the Arabs' best weapons against them, and this would pay off enormously in the years to come. Less than a year later, in April of 1967, the Israeli Air Force found itself in a dogfight with the Syrians over the Kolan Heights. The Israelis shot down seven Syrian MiG-21s and then flew circles over Damascus, just to let the Syrian military know what they were now capable of. Israel is famous for a lot of things, and towards the top of that list are its spies. The early 1960s are filled with such stories of daring, danger, and determination. Espionage and covert operations were essential to Israel's success and security. That's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In 1961, a young, flashy Arab businessman popped up in Buenos Aires. Born to Syrian parents, he quickly became a fixture in the local Arab community. He let it be known that he was looking to honor his parents by doing right by his Syrian homeland, and of course to make a little business along the way. He was also political. He dropped hints that he'd be interested in supporting the Ba'ath Party in Syria, which was illegal at the time but rising in popularity. His name was Kamel Amin Thabet and he wanted to move to Syria. As it turns out, the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency, was watching him very closely. Within a year, the ambitious Thabet had parlayed his connections into an opportunity to set up an import business in Syria, and he moved there in 1962. As befitting an attractive up-and-comer, he rented a large and elegant apartment, which he used to host parties for Syria's A-listers. Alcohol, women, cash, whatever the big shots needed discreetly, Kamel Thabet became the go-to guy. He began especially cultivating admirers amongst the Syrian military and government, and the high-ranking officials of the Ba'ath Party. He was particularly close with the Syrian military officer and senior member of the Ba'ath Party, whom he had befriended already back in Argentina. That guy's name was Amin al-Hafiz. That would prove a very advantageous friendship indeed, for the Ba'ath Party staged a coup in 1963, won, and Amin al-Hafiz became president of Syria. He was only too happy to bestow even more friendship and favors on his buddy Kamel Thabet. President al-Hafiz needed friends around him whom he could trust, and he was happy for Thabet to join the insiders club of the men running the Syrian military. Thabet may have been a businessman, but now he was getting tons of information about the Syrian military and all of it was finding its way back to the Mossad. And that's because Kamel Amin Thabet was really named Eli Cohen, and he was an Israeli spy. He really was the child of Syrians, Jewish Syrians, and was born in Egypt, not Argentina. Israeli spy stories are the stuff of legend. Some ended in triumph, others in tragedy, and they weren't always about strict military intelligence stuff like fighter jets. In the post-war and early years of the state, intelligence operations were often about fulfilling the Zionist imperative of ingathering Jewish refugees from around the world. Israeli operatives helped smuggle Holocaust survivors across the Mediterranean and organized airlifts for Jews from the Middle East. 
One of the reasons, a big reason, why Israeli intelligence was so effective was because of the ingathering of Jews from every corner of the globe. Pick a language, and there was probably someone in Israel who spoke it fluently. Pick a country, and someone was from there, or their parents were. There were blue-eyed white Jews who could fit in in France, and there were dark-skinned Moroccan Jews comfortable in the Kaspas of northern Africa. Egyptian Jews, like Eli Cohen, who could fit in with Arab communities abroad. In some instances, they would arrive in Israel only to be immediately sent back to their home countries as spies, naturally fitting in as the citizens they were a few minutes ago. Often overlooked even to this day, these Mizrahi Jews in particular sacrificed life in Israel in order to serve their new Jewish state in great risk and danger. Some were caught and executed. The intelligence they sent back proved essential for Israel's security in the early years of the state. So to be a spy in Israel was to be very busy. They were in Western Europe looking to buy the newest weapons, or in Egypt targeting former Nazi scientists who were developing a deadly missile program for the Egyptian military, or in Russia gathering Cold War intelligence that would be helpful to the Europeans and the Americans, or in Argentina kidnapping former Nazi masterminds. Nearly always Israel used spies who blended into the culture and the language. Russian Jews for Russia, Mizrahi Jews for the Arab countries, Big problems when it came to Iceland. Luckily, not a hotbed of terrorist activity in the 1960s. But of course, to be a spy for Israel was also incredibly risky, and all the more so for those operating in unfriendly, or worse, Arab countries. In the early 1960s, Eli Cohen as Kamel Fabet found himself probably the only person in the world who could stand literally on both sides of the Israeli-Syrian border. Eli Cohen was born to Syrian Jewish parents in Egypt in 1924, and he remained there even after Israel was established in 1948. His family moved to the Jewish state, but Eli was finishing up his studies and also helping Israel on the side. It seems he had a minor involvement in several covert operations in Egypt during the 1950s, which is how he came to the Mossad's attention. A committed Zionist and a proud Jew, he was under constant suspicion by the Egyptian authorities, but they never could quite prove that he was involved with anything. Still, with persecution of the Jews ever increasing under the rule of President Nazar, Eli Cohen finally left for Israel in 1956. The man who had helped smuggle Jews out of Egypt was now getting himself out. In Israel in the late 1950s, he worked for military intelligence, but was rejected by the Mossad, which bummed him out. He took a boring bureaucratic job and in 1959 married an Iraqi Jew named Nadia. But he was restless and frustrated. He had a deep love for Israel and the Jewish people and was wanting to play a more active role like he did in Egypt. He felt his skills were being wasted. Nadia recalls him as a modest man who didn't care for money. He was a small talker, but a great doer, she wrote. In 1960, the Mossad found him again. They needed an undercover agent in Syria, someone who could really blend in. They dug deep into the reject applications and pulled out Eli Cohen's name. He received intensive training and built his cover story as Syrian businessman Kamel Amin Thabet, and a year later he was sent off to Buenos Aires to begin making it all happen. That's where he met Amin al-Hafiz, future president, and things began falling into place. 
In Syria, the Mossad tasked him with collecting as much information as he could about Syrian military capabilities and political intentions. They gave him a small radio, the parts hidden around his apartment, which he could assemble, send coded bursts of information, and take it apart again afterwards. Those radio transmissions were received by an agent in military intelligence back in Israel, who only knew the Syrian spy by his codename. By extraordinary coincidence, that agent was Ellie Cohen's brother, who figured out that it was Ellie, but later on. By far the most important place for Ellie Cohen in Israel was the Golan Heights. Last episode, I talked about the water wars between Israel and Syria. The Golan Heights provided a strategic position for the Syrians to be able to attack Israel's north, and it was where Syria tried to divert the headwaters of the Jordan River, depriving Israel of water downstream. Eli Cohen provided some of the intelligence regarding the water diversion scheme that Israel was able to use against the Syrians. The Golan Heights was basically just a huge Syrian military zone, and while Israel had pretty decent reconnaissance from the sky, they needed someone on the ground to provide the crucial details. Kamel Fabet worked his magic, getting himself invited on several trips to the border zone. He took careful notes and drawings. The most famous story told about him concerns one of these trips. As he toured the various Syrian bases up in the Golan, he complained to the officials that it was incredibly hot, there was no shade. Should they not plant trees, he insisted, to provide their soldiers with some shade and rest and a boost to morale? The commanders loved the idea, and eucalyptus trees were planted at every base. Thanks to his ingenuity, Israeli pilots during the 1967 war then knew that everywhere they saw a cluster of trees was a Syrian base to bomb. It was the crucial element in defeating the Syrians on the Golan Heights. The Golan today is Israeli territory, and sure enough, still today, wherever you see eucalyptus trees, you'll find the ruins of those Syrian army bases. Now, I do have an Israeli friend who was a super elite commando back in the day, and he insists this story is completely not true. I feel like I have to tell you that. Whatever this man has told you is a lie. He lies for a living. He's in the intelligence business. Exactly. You're in the intelligence business. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, anyway, Kamel Fabet was doing very well in Syria, providing Israel a gold mine of intelligence information. He had the ear of the president and, incredibly, was even suggested as a candidate for the Minister of Defense at one point. But he also had enemies, and they were starting to close in. Cohen wasn't the only Israeli agent scoring coups behind enemy lines. While he was in Argentina setting up with the Syrians, Lebanese intelligence was circling around Shula Cohen Kishik, a Mossad agent in Beirut. At the age of 16, Shula had been married off to a rich Lebanese Jewish businessman and settled in Beirut in the 1930s. Like Ellie later, she hosted lavish parties for the Lebanese political, military, and business elite, establishing valuable contacts and building her brand as a well-known socialite. What she was also doing was espionage. Her codename was The Pearl. The Pearl remained in Lebanon once Israel was established and passed on military intelligence on Lebanese and Syrian troop movements during the War of Independence. She was also engaged in the Underground Railroad, smuggling Jews from Arab countries into Israel through Lebanon, including, at one point, a bus with 70 Jewish children that was under police surveillance. 
All of this while giving birth to seven children of her own, and apparently without her husband's knowledge of her activities. For 14 years, she spied for Israel, thrilled, she later recalled, with the opportunity to help her homeland and her people. But by the early 1960s, Lebanese intelligence began hearing rumors about her activities and set up surveillance, bugging the walls of her apartment. The pearl was soon caught. Her trial in 1961 was a sensation, revealing as it did how this Jewish woman had duped the elite of Lebanon in service of Israel. It was a huge embarrassment and a shock. People couldn't believe that such a prominent figure of society was actually a spy. There could be only one sentence. Death. But given the trial's publicity and the international pressure that followed, Lebanon reduced her sentence to 20 years. She was put in prison in 1962. So the Mossad was always nervous about its clandestine agents, especially ones so vulnerable as Eli Cohen. Three times they brought him out of Syria to Israel, through Europe, each time with elaborate procedures to ensure that he wasn't followed. The third time he came back in 1964, it was to see Nadia give birth to their third child. He now had three small children whom he barely saw and hardly knew. He didn't want to go back, but the Mossad convinced him to make one more brief visit to Syria, and then they'd pull him out for good. Meanwhile, the head of Syrian intelligence had gotten wise to the fact that there was a high-placed mole. He was also suspicious of Kamal Fabet. The man lived too large, he was too friendly, his business was too opaque. The Syrians also knew that this spy was sending out coded radio messages, but they couldn't track him down amidst all the other normal radio signals going on. So they called in Soviet intelligence for help. In a carefully coordinated operation, the Syrians shut down all the radio traffic and waited for the spy to send out his signal. Then they would be able to triangulate his position. It worked. On January 24, 1965, the Syrians caught Kamel Fabet red-handed. It was a colossal embarrassment. A friend of the president who almost became the defense minister. Israel had completely humiliated the Syrians, and they took out their revenge on Eli. Tortured in prison and hastily convicted, he was sentenced to death. As with Shulako and Kishik, there was international pressure on Syria not to carry out the sentence. Even the Pope asked Syria to commute. In desperation, his wife Nadia walked into the Syrian embassy in Paris to beg for his life. On May 18, 1965, Eli Cohen requested that a rabbi visit him. The chief rabbi of Syria was brought in, followed Eli into a waiting van, and drove with him to Martyr's Square in the center of Damascus. And there, Eli Cohen was hanged. It was a huge blow to Israel and the Mossad. Eli had given up a ton of secret information under extreme torture, and the Syrians gloated to the entire Arab world how they had caught a Zionist spy. They refused to return his body, still to this day. Despite numerous campaigns and personal appeals in the last 55 years, Eli Cohen's whereabouts remain unknown except to a few people in the Syrian government. The rumor is that the Syrians move his body every once in a while to prevent the Israelis from finding his location and sending in a rescue team. Strangely, in 2018, Ellie Cohen's wristwatch popped up on the open market, the one that he had on him when he was captured. We of course don't know quite what happened next, though we can guess, but somehow the Mossad ended up with it. 
Ellie's wife Nadia is still alive, as are his three children, and she continues to lead the family's efforts to retrieve his remains. I am proud of him. He was a genius. His actions were phenomenal, she has written. I am proud for what he did, but I never felt that I had a husband. The children never felt they had a father. The years that he was a spy were incredibly hard on her, and she only had the barest understanding of what he was doing and where he was. It took her 30 years, she said, to begin speaking openly about Ellie and her own experience. There has been renewed interest in Ellie Cohen lately, as Netflix produced a series about his exploits called The Spy, starring Sasha Baron Cohen. It's excellently done. I encourage you to check it out. I won't give you any spoilers, but Nadia has taken issues with some of the ways she and Ellie were portrayed, and she has disputed parts of the story. But she's also really appreciated the attention it has brought, and hopes that it will reinvigorate the efforts to get him back. There remains debate today about just how valuable Ellie Cohen's intelligence actually was to Israel. But there is no doubt that he is worshipped as a national hero, the greatest spy that we know of in Israeli history. He remains officially accounted amongst the missing, and will be until his body is returned. In the dangerous game of espionage, especially between hostile enemies like Israel and its Arab neighbors, Israel scored big achievements but also paid high costs. Numerous spies were caught, some executed, others imprisoned, some got lucky. The Pearl, Shula Cohen Kishik, had been sent to prison for 20 years in 1962. But after the Six-Day War in 1967, she was sent back to Israel in a prisoner exchange. She died in 2017 at the age of 100, going by the nickname Grandma James Bond. These spies were essential for Israel's security, and through their extraordinary bravery and accomplishments and, yes, sometimes ruthlessness, the Mossad became a highly respected, feared, and successful intelligence agency, inspiring the envy of its peers and the wrath of its enemies. The 1960s didn't see the last of the great intelligence operations at all, but between the capture of Adolf Eichmann and the heroic tragedy of Eli Cohen, Israel's spies made their names. And there was no let-up. By the middle of the decade, Israel had trouble on all its borders, with Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and even beyond with the Saudis and the Turks and the Soviet Union. And then, another threat emerged. The Palestinians organized themselves into a resistance group that would become arguably the most famous and deadly terrorist organization of the 20th century, up until Al-Qaeda seized the mantle in 2001. It was called Fatah, but you've probably heard of it as the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. It would be Israel's primary nemesis for the next 40 years. That's next time. Today's music was Syrian Jewish folk music, Basilius Alawad and Uzi Hitman, Thanks for listening, everyone. The heat throats. See you later.